0: I think we had known about them a long time. The Global Union was given years to respond and do what General Makara's voice demanded over the hollow screens of every family in the Union west of the Atlantic in those days. Our president fails us, Makara's voice boomed through the screen's blue light, violently penetrating the veneer of safety that President Robesheim and the Senators had so meticulously constructed for the GU citizens. Join the brigade, and we'll send these face-stealing bastards back down the hellhole they came from. Of course, Makara was a dissenter, so rather than combat the threat the General had dedicated his life fighting... Robenschein wiped out him and his brigades as they were making their way to the California territories, leaving the entire continent to the changelings. They had always existed, but, up until August of 2377, did so only in legend. The common tongue called them Skinwalkers, ghost stories left over from the age of gunpowder and horses and handed down by the ancient natives of the American continent. They were the tales told during children's sleepovers. That's how I knew them as a boy. I grew up in West, in the province of Arizona, with my occupational class identification card stamped with the bright red letters AO. It was better than my father had done, he had only been made an agricultural hand. I took my duty as overseer at the normal age of 23 and was given a plot of over 100,000 acres in Arizona. I was there, faithfully performing my duty for the GU and the things crawled out from the earth. I, along with the rest of the world, watched the West Evening Report the night of the breakout. The journalism czar spoke in a cool, collected tone. There have been countless reports, ranging from the provinces of Calrion to Minerado, of strange creatures tunneling out from holes in the earth, he said. The Bureau of Ethology has looked into the matter, and found the creatures to be nothing more than coyotes. All citizens of West are asked to go about their duties, as usual. I, like everyone, put the Bureau of Wildlife control number in my favorites list on my personal utility device and didn't think any more of it. We all should have remained holed up in our homes, answering the door for no one, no matter how much their face looked or their voice sounded like those we loved. We were fools. It was unusually hot and arid the day I received the call. You better come to Kilgrain Shack, the overseer assistant, Alice, said through my PUD. I could tell from her expression that something was wrong. My mind raced with thoughts of quotas not being met, of G-men busting through my storage houses, meticulously counting each grain of wheat they found and docking me merits for each one miscounted. I knew I couldn't afford it. My merits had already taken a hit from the debacle the year before, when Braxton Kilgrain had misplaced one of the winnowing machines. In reality, he had simply forgotten to count it in the monthly inventory, but that was as good as gone to the government. Luckily, I had been able to pin most of the blame on Kilgrain, and I was only docked 1,500. Unfortunately, he was forced to leave his gated housing community and move into one of the fondly named Shacks, miles away from the start of the farms. Since his wallet dipped below the neighborhoods required a 100,000 merits. The rover sputtered as I killed the engine, as it always did, and I walked out onto the dusty ground with my red handkerchief covering my mouth and nose to protect against the whipping, sand-filled air. It never ceased to amaze me, hydrofarming technology. It could turn a barren desert into farmable land, but it could only stretch as far as the bureaucrats wanted it to. Alice met me outside Kilgrain's door, Her hair up in a ponytail and a bright blue scarf tied around her face. She wore dark sunglasses, but I didn't have to see her eyes to know she was terribly distressed. She was silent as she pressed the pneumatic door button and motioned for me to walk inside. The stench of blood hung heavy in the air, and I clutched the bandana over my mouth tight. The bodies of Kilgrain's wife and two children were torn open on the dirty plastic floor. The rib cages, Grizzly white contrast against the dark red blood that coated the walls. I stared into the pale, dead face of his daughter and noticed how similar she looked to my own. They had to be about the same age. She had to be no older than my Marcia. The thought was disturbing, and I stepped outside for some air. Alice returned to the farms, and I called the Ameriwesk crime line. They sent two deputies to investigate the case. We found Kilgrain's body outside, deep in the cornfields. He must have run for miles. We found him with a thick trail of blood that led from the house. The deputies returned to the shack and took their photos and fingerprints while I sat outside the door and tried to quiet my stomach. It was twilight when the two men emerged, and the poisonous fumes of Empire City had already drifted into the horizon, making the sunset bright red. I hoped that the hands back on the farms stayed on task. I had dealt with enough that day. Agricultural Overseer Avery Bellum, one of the deputies said, stepping toward me, his dark suit glimmering like onyx. I stood up and looked at him expectantly. He handed me a thin piece of synth paper emblazoned with the Amero West insignia. They brought the three bodies outside the shack, covered them with a thin white sheet, and placed them on top of Braxton's in the back of their black transporter. The door was slammed shut, and the lock securely fastened before they climbed into the cab and took off into the toxic sunset. I tucked the waiver into the pocket of my trousers, knowing that I have to file it at the end of the year or face the penalty of an excused absence from duty. When I got back to the farms, I was not surprised to find that Alice's tallies were all off, and I spent the greater part of the night fixing them. That was fine, though. It kept my mind off of blood and bones and death. The next morning I visited GR1, where most of the grain from the recent harvest was kept. I brought out my flask and took a long swig of rye water, longer than I did most mornings, and passed through the huge, steel-receiving doors. A silence had crept over all the hands, and they unloaded the grain carriers with an air of jittery fear. Their eyes were fixed upon a man who stood with his PUD in hand carefully counting every bale, inspecting it for quality. It was Braxton Kilgrain, doing what he did every Thursday morning, like a ghost. I went up to him, and he lurched backwards with surprise. Avery, I didn't see you there, he laughed. Did you need something? There was a strange gleam in his eyes, and it made my tongue dry. The words wouldn't come, not in my head, and not through my mouth. I left him and went up to my office. I sat in my chair and stared at the tallies on the display as the numbers increased, bringing my flask of rye water to my lips over and over. By the time I had finished it, I had decided to do nothing. My name was doubtlessly already in the report the deputies filed, and any discrepancy between that report and reality would be linked to me. I didn't understand how Kilgrain was still alive but I certainly didn't want to get involved. People who got involved always got burned. I didn't want to be labeled a dissenter. The thing that was Kilgrain was the last to leave that day. I watched him shut down each of the winnowers, counting each one on his PUD, before turning to the breaker box and shutting down the power. As he did, the overhead lights abruptly shut off, and, as they did, Braxton's face displayed a strange expression. It was inhuman, animalistic, like a deer caught in a rover's front lights. It unsettled me. The next day, members of the service came and loaded him up in one of their large black transporters. All of the hands gathered at the receiving doors, watching. Kilgren's face was blank. There was no look of surprise, no fear. He climbed into the back of the transporter as casually as if he was walking through his own front door. He wasn't heard from again, and I always wondered what the thing would have done with him had we left it alone. I wonder how long it would have kept up its charade, and for what purpose. During the evenings when everyone had left for the day, I would find myself driving out to Kilgrain's shack. Yellow crime scene tape circled the entire place and I would circle it too, reading Do Not Cross Under Penalty of Law over and over again. One day the tape was gone. Without knowing why, I hit the button to the pneumatic door and walked inside. Mr. Bellum, Grace Kilgrain said, we weren't expecting you. I stood there, in the foyer of Braxton's dirty old shack and said nothing as his wife, whose body i had seen flayed and open and destroyed, got me a cup of coffee. His two children were playing in the bedroom. I could hear their squeals and laughter as I sat down in the small wooden table in the kitchen. Grace sat down in the chair opposite mine and smiled awkwardly as she sipped her coffee. Are you looking for Braxton, she asked? Um, yeah, yes, I replied, barely aware that my lips were moving. I don't know where he is, she said. He hasn't come home for a few days. I guess he's hard at work, right? Right, I answered, and stared into the blackness of the coffee. She asked me, did you want cream or sugar? I said, no, no, I'm fine. He's gone, you know. Who, she asked. Your husband. Braxton got picked up by the service, I told her. Her face went blank for several seconds, but quickly contorted into an intense look of pain and exasperation. The change was so sudden, it frightened me. It reminded me of Braxton as the lights went out. What? How? she cried. What did he do? He's never done anything wrong. It must have been a mistake. Their service isn't known to make mistakes, ma'am, I said, and added, as an afterthought, you know that to imply such is an automatic reduction of 10,000 merits, right? Grace swallowed and gasped. Yes, of course I do. I'm sorry. It was a moment of weakness, and it won't happen again. I'm sorry. She smiled and stared at me. It seemed impossible how long her eyes stayed open, on blinking. When will he be back? She asked suddenly. What? I said, snapping out of the trance or unnerving glare it placed me under. Braxton, when will he be back? She stared, and as she stared, I thought I saw the glimmer of light behind her iris slowly fade, dull, deadened into something as cold and unfeeling as steel. Still her smile and still her stare, but the humanity was gone. She was an object, unfeeling and cold, and I didn't understand how or why. I-, I need to be going now, I stammered, rising from the chair. Why? both Kilgrain's children said in unison from the doorway into the bedroom. Was it even possible? Their voices were exactly the same, a dull, hollow, metallic chirp. They raise a good point, agricultural overseer Avery Bellum Grace said, the blacks of her eyes nearly consuming the entire socket, unseeing. Why are you leaving us so soon? My heart pounded violently in my chest, and it felt as if Kilgrane's tiny shack was spinning around and around. I could feel my stomach lurch in response to the motion, and I scrambled through the dilapidated foyer and out the front door. I didn't look behind me. I climbed into my rover and spun it around, jamming on the accelerator and flinging a huge cloud of dust into the air as I sped away. I looked up into the rear display above the windshield and saw all three of them, mother and two children, standing in the doorway, waving, their faces illuminated by the red rear lights of my rover. As soon as I got back to my house, I looked for my daughter, Marcia. She was right where I had left her, sleeping on the couch with her school backpack stolen on her shoulders and her P.U.D. resting lightly on her rising and falling chest. I thought about hugging her. I wanted to feel her smooth skin against me and know that she wasn't the same as Braxton's little daughter, dead and then a monster, but I let her sleep. I called the West Crime Line. and placed the two deputies, the service responded the next morning and loaded Grace and the two children into one of their transporters. Their faces, even those of the children, were calm and collected, like Braxton's. Over the next week, three of my hands died to later reemerge. I saw their shattered bodies with my own eyes, and the very next day they were working in GR2 and 3 like nothing had happened. The service came each time, offering no explanation, but assuring everyone on the plantation that the situation was under control, and advising them to go about their duties as usual. I was given this instruction in a more personal manner in the form of several nondescript memos sent by the service to my personal account. The first read, Pay no attention to the missing slash re-emerging personnel under your care. The service has looked into the matter. I received a second a few days later. It read, We understand the duress this situation has thrust upon you. Your discretion in this manner will not be unrewarded. That memo came attached with 25,000 merits, more than I had ever received at once before. Four more installments, each of 25,000 followed in the weeks to come, and I was able to move myself and Marcia out into Crimson Estates, a community where many of the bigwigs from Empire City had their second homes. It was there that we first received the reports that the wild-talking Makara was on the march, and I, like everyone else, considered him a loon, a rebel, and a dangerous dissenter. We regarded him as a traitor when he was the only one who could have stopped it all. Everything. I and the rest of the development stood outside our homes and cheered as Robensheim's army passed through to crush Makara. And we cheered louder still when it was announced that Makara and his entire force was slain north of the Rio Grande. The parades went on for weeks, and we were given almost a month and a half off to celebrate. Rye water was shipped in huge drums, and given freely to any who asked. The days went by as a blur, and we barely noticed the disappearances, the reemergences, and the black-suited service men and women who slid casually and silently through it all, always with their large black transporters, and always with the slamming of the transporter doors on blank, deadened faces. The world sobered, and I along with it, as the memos came that the time of celebration had passed. We were all to resume our duties. I woke on the dawn of September 5th, 2377, the first day of the new season of toil, with my head pounding, and I realized that my Marsha was gone. I knew from the instant my eyes shot open, though I didn't understand how. A fear set in that she had been gone for a long time, that the rye water in time of celebration had stolen her from me somehow. I ran down the marble stairs of the first floor and pounded the button to open Marcia's pneumatic door. It slid open. Her bed was made, and the trinkets, tiny porcelain animals her mother had left her, were all neatly arranged on her dresser as they always were. But she wasn't inside. Marcia, I called. My voice echoed hauntingly in the expansive gilded cavern of my home. Darby, a low-merit worker who acted as our maid, was busy dusting the bookshelves. Have you seen Marsha? I asked her frantically. She looked startled. No, I haven't, sir. I left her to her duties and stormed back up the stairs. I had only minutes to get to the office. If I didn't, it would be an unexcused absence from duty, an automatic subtraction of 10,000 merits. More once the panel judged you. I could look for her when the day was done, and if she didn't show up, I could call the crime line for what seemed like the 1,000th time. It was difficult to concentrate on the numbers on the display that day, to carefully track and account for every asset and cost of business when I knew my Marcia was missing. I called the Child Education Center on my lunch break, just in case she was there. I wasn't surprised to learn she had never showed. The day seemed to go on forever, but at last the buzzer sounded, and we were free. I barely remember the drive back to the house. My mind was in a feverish state. I pulled into our driveway and put my thumb to the print lock. It chimed, and I walked right through the front door. Marcia, Marcia, Are you here?' I said, my voice more frantic than it had been that morning. "'I haven't seen her all day,' Darby said from the living room. I grabbed the electronic torchlight from my study, went back out the front door, and sped off into the night, the rover's engine howling. I headed towards Kilgren's shack, not understanding why, but knowing that I would find her there. The headlights of the rover fell upon a body lying in the dusty earth and I knew it was Marcia's. I recognized her bright auburn hair. For the third time in two months, I called AmeriWest crime line. I stared into the horizon as the sun shone over the red plateaus. It seemed wrong somehow, and I wondered why I wasn't crying. The servicemen who arrived, it was always servicemen, gave me a waiver, took her, and were on their way without a sentence of consolation. As was customary, granite memorial pillar was put in the communal mourning field with all the other dead. I could barely look at it. For diligent duty, it read. They all read the same. There was nothing Marsha there. I returned home and poured myself a large glass of rye water. I don't answer the door when she comes at night, pleading to be let in. She has the same eyes as Kilgren and his family. But I can't call the service on her. I know it isn't really her, but something human, something paternal in me, hates to hear her cry. Phantom Space Funhouse is produced by Nate Gutman, David Riondo, and Kim Scharfenberger. Daughter at the Door was written, read, and composed by Nate Gutman. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at Phantom Space Pod. You can write to us at Funhouse at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.